0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your Titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. It's 1995, and no one's ever attempted a double-bypass brain transplant before. The movie? Toy Story.
3: Hey everybody, welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are watching one film every week from the AFI Top 100 Films of All Time list 2007 edition to find out if they are really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the filmmakers of today. Um, we'll be talking about number 99 on the list today, which is a little film called Toy Story. Uh, But before we do, Amy, let's talk about last week's film, which was Midnight Cowboy. Um, I want to first just say that uh, for everyone who reached out to me to tell me that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was not in Hateful Eight, I will say you're wrong. I'm right. He was. You just don't remember him. That's how good he was.
2: Wow, and that is how gaslighting works. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we got a lot of interesting feedback this week. Um, Diane Takaki, she pointed out that she has been finding the whole sell a movie by its famous quote thing even on Apple TV. And I have a quiz for you. you. Do you even know these movies, Paul? Okay. If I said it is advertised by, quote, let the hacking begin.
3: Let the hacking begin? Is that like hackers?
2: It is the social network. Oh, so yeah. So, if you that, wanted to go see the social network, that classic
3: line from the social network <laughs> let the hacking begin. <laughs> Oh, my God.
2: Also, I want to say that Susan Kai also related to what I was saying about like unthreatening male crushes, about yes. how there's a certain type of boy face that young girls really, really like, and that it made her realize that when she first saw Star Wars, she was a Luke girl, and she did not appreciate Han until she was older.
3: Oh, I like that. Um, you know, Melanie Manning wrote something that was really interesting. She said, I would have been one of those people that walked out of Midnight Cowboy. It makes me like it more. I'm not sure about it. I, I love what you have to say about it, but I can't stop thinking about that kid rubbing a rat on his mom's face. What is is this movie? Is it great or is it awful? And I think, you know, what I wrestled with when I was watching the film too, is like, it's making me feel ways uh, that, you know, it's kind of bumming me out, but it's going in unexpected ways. That at certain points, I'm totally engaged by it visually and it it puts you in an uneasy position. And I think that uh, a film like that, a film like Two thousand and one, these big movies that kind of subvert how we watch film uh, is is always worthy of being on a list like this. And I, you know, again after our discussion, I really came to love Midnight Cowboy even more than than I thought uh, based on our conversation about it. I think it's a movie that really does grow with you.
2: Actually, and I love that he brought up the scene of the kid rubbing a rat on his mom's face yeah. because. We didn't even get to talk about that scene in the episode because there's so much to talk about. And what I think is so smart about it is in that weird little surreal moment, it really hammers home that this isn't even a movie about two exceptional guys. They're not exceptional weirdos in any way. Mm -hmm. The entire city is filled with weirdos. And it's the fact that, you know, I think a lot of movies are like, it's the weirdo in the city and how are they going to fit in? Then normalizing them in that way or making them out weirded is part of
3: what makes the movie work so well. I totally, totally agree. Um, There's a great question here from Paul Young on our Facebook page. He said, you know, thinking about Midnight Cowboy getting the X rating, I started to think about, you know, ratings in general, like an R-rated movie. Seeing an R-rated movie was a real rite of passage. You know, what are our thoughts about movie ratings? Should they exist? Do they make movies seem more or less appealing? How do ratings vary in other countries beyond, you know, G, PG, PG PG-13, R, and NC-17? I can't really speak to many other countries. I've, I've seen different things like... 18 seems to be the the middle ground. But I think ratings are important, actually, um, because we don't know what's in the movie. And, you know, unless you're going to go deep diving into it, especially when you're looking at content, uh, when you're bringing people that are younger. You know, like for me, Spider-Man uh, Into the Spider-Verse is something that I was like, oh, I want to bring my kid to it. But the rating made me give pause to it. I was like, oh, I wonder. And, you know, I had to do a little bit more research on it to find out that it's not next it wouldn't be like the perfect film for a five-year-old. There's some heavier, darker themes in there. So I think it is a good stopgap. And I also think when you're a teen, it's the coolest rite of passage. Although I don't think anyone has that anymore. I think when I grew up, I was like, R-rated movie. Now you can watch Netflix and you're seeing dicks flopping around. So it's no big deal.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, my first date... um Wow, my first date to the movies, my dad was very upset that I was going to go see an R-rated movie. And he was like, what if you fall for this guy? And you always have to remember that your first movie together was this R-rated movie. And I don't even remember who the guy was, but that movie is one of my favorite movies. What was it? Priscilla Queen in the Desert.
3: Oh, wow. Yeah,
2: yeah. He was like, you're not old enough to go see this movie and blah, 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 blah. And the person who talked my dad into letting me go see this R-rated movie was the deacon at our Greek Orthodox Church. He said he heard it was very good.
3: I love it. Um, well, Amy, before we get into our listener calls, I want to remind everybody that we have three very cool shirts up right now at the Public uh Uh, Store that's tpublic.com/slash stores/slash unspooled. And uh, one of them is my new favorite. It's just a picture of Charlton Heston saying, I love lepers. Um, And you can get that on any kind of thing you want: the coffee cup, sweatshirt, t-shirt, whatever. Check it out. That's a
2: very, that's a very pro message. I think we should all love a little more.
3: I love it and you were wearing the AFI AF uh shirt the other day and it looked really good.
2: You so noticed that? I, I didn't did. draw attention to it. No, I, was I like, loved oh, it. Oh.
3: I did I noticed it? Um all right, so last week we asked you um you know to help us reinvent Woody's catchphrase. Woody is a pull toy in Toy Story and when you pull a string, he goes, "There's a snake in my boot." Um, But we felt like, you know, it's not as cool as To Infinity and Beyond. Maybe there would be some uh, better catchphrases that Woody could have if we were to update his voice box. So let's take a listen to uh, some calls now with some uh, interesting suggestions.
1: What's Woody's new catchphrase? It, of course, is... Buzz! Welcome to Flavortown! Yeehaw!
4: Get ready to cry. They pelted us with rocks and garbage.
5: When Pixar finally gives us the Toy Story that we all want, the PG 13 version, Woody's new catchphrase will be I'm getting too old for this shit.
0: I sell propane and propane accessories. <laughs> Don't drink the water, partner.
4: Yeah, Woody's new catchphrase is
2: John Wayne is racist.
3: John Wayne is racist.
2: <laughs> wow.
3: All right. Cool. I will
2: take it. I'll take it. Why not? Why not? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons why not. Kids are like, who's John Wayne I'm for?
3: Um, Well, Amy, let's get into talking about this movie. Uh, Toy Story, let's uh, cue up the old projector. It's 1995. People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive is Brad Pitt. Time Magazine's Person of the Year is Newt Gingrich. And Byte Magazine's Best Thing Online is home pages. Uh, Amazon and eBay open for business. The FDA approves the first chickenpox vaccines and the minimum wage is 425 an hour. The top song is One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols perpetrate the domestic terror attack known as the Oklahoma City bombing. and nearly 14% of Americans use the internet. Top movies are Apollo 13, Babe, Jumanji, Braveheart, In Mr. Holland's opus, as well as today's film, Toy Story, which is number 99. Number 99 on the 2007 AFI list. Amy, who's in it? What's it about?
2: Toy Story. It is the first feature film from Pixar, the film that revolutionizes animation forevermore. It is directed by John Lasseter, is written by Joss Whedon, Andrew Stanton, and Pete Docter, and it stars... Tom Hanks as Woody, a upholstering cowboy doll. Tim Allen as Buzz Lightyear, a space ranger action figure. Don Rickles, Jim Varney, Wallace Shawn, John Ratzenberger, Annie Potts, John Morris, Laurie Metcalf. Everybody's in this movie and they're all toys. Toy Story might be one of the only films I can point to in my lifetime and say, oh, this was a huge technological turning point. You know, I wasn't alive for sound. I wasn't alive for color. I wasn't alive for the very beginning of 3D. I wasn't alive for a lot of stuff. But I was alive the moment that animation, which I loved, Beauty and the Beast, flat, beautiful, hand-on 2D animation, turned into this, turned into 3D textures, turned into a brand new art form, like right in front of my face.
3: You know, it's it's so funny you say that because it's such a part of our culture now to think about a time before this style of animation is is oddly mind blowing because we're just surrounded by it on so many different levels. I have two kids, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and this film and its two sequels are playing all the time in the house. I literally was going to bring all of the Toy Story toys in that I have at my house right now, and I felt bad taking them out of my house so my kids could not play with them. That's how much in the rotation they are. And I think there's something to be said for A film that is this timeless. Each sequel, I would argue, almost gets better. They find different ways to explore these characters. And the characters don't age. You know, so there's no age to this film. Do they look better, each one? Absolutely. But you could watch this right now. You put this in the theater right now, the 95 version, and there's nothing that looks old about it. You know, (laughs)
2: Almost, almost, almost. I mean, the human beings in this movie. Like, now we have, like internet car insurance ads with right. human characters that look better than the human characters in Toy Story. I totally, but that's why yeah. it's so smart that they made a movie starring things that are plastic, because right. plastic gets smudged, it gets burned by the sun, but it doesn't look outdated the way that, like, the mother here does. Well, I
3: mean, I was going deep into my research for this film, and I was really trying to wrap my head around, where's Andy's dad? Is he dead? Are they divorced? It's a story about a single mom. And then I found out they just couldn't animate like humans very well. And they were like, well, we didn't really need another adult human. So we just didn't put him in the movie.
2: Wait, isn't this exactly what happened to Snow White? They had such a problem animating the humans. They were like, more rabbits, more rabbits. We don't need that prince. Let's get rid of the prince character. They got rid of the dude again. And I think that that actually
3: works to the film, you know, because it forced focus on very streamlined Adult characters, very much like the Peanuts or something like that. They're there, except for Sid, who I would argue is the main antagonist in the film.
2: You know what scares me the most about the humans here?
3: Right. It's the teeth. Mm.
2: Don't do humans just have the most atrocious teeth? They're all like little kind of fang chiclets.
3: One of the worst images in the film is when Sid has the microscope up to his mouth. Um, and you look at his braces and his teeth. It's like, oh, God. It is. But maybe that's how toys see us.
2: <laughs> oh, God, I don't really want to think about how a toy would see me. Toy Story to me feels like this transitional movie, you right. know, not just in terms of the technology, but in terms of what was a feature film going to be if it was animation at this time. Right. You know, because up until this point, we had all these Disney films that I loved. Like, the very first movie I ever sold by myself in theaters was Beauty and the Beast. My parents had dropped me off and picked me up, like, two hours later. I felt so grown up. And Beauty and the Beast was that type of animated film that was the kind of was I grew up on, where you have like these characters and then every so often they stop and they sing about their feelings in a song and there's a big song number and blah, 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 blah. And then you go back to the plot. Right. And this is like that too. I mean, this movie Toy Story like stops a lot for songs, you know, whereas I feel like now the animated films I see just sort of... Race forward, and they're more just plot, 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 without as much music.
3: Well, they're not singing songs, and that's a big distinction. You know, for the classic Disney films of this time, The Lion Kings, The Aladdins, they are singing. Even Tarzan, you got Phil Collins in there, you know, singing an ode to the trees. Um, but here, it's Randy Newman scoring the film the way he would score a live-action film.
2: Yeah, that's why I think of it as like transitional, right. you know, because it feels like it has one foot in one world and one foot in the other world. You know, it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about with Midnight Cowboy last week. Remember right. how that review was like, God, I can't wait until we stop having like musical song numbers in movies that tell us how the characters are feeling. And we right. can stop wasting time watching people on buses as like this song plays to tell us how the character is feeling instead of the character just saying something. This movie feels a little bit like that, you know, it feels a little bit like The Graduate, where you have songs kind of playing over montages, telling you, I mean, everything we know about Woody's relationship with Andy is in music. It's not through scenes with them.
3: Right, I mean, you would argue, or you could argue, that like Randy Newman is kind of this R-Town narrator that's kind of leading you through the emotional highs and lows of the film. As we get towards the end, I need to play one of the Randy Newman songs, but this song, you know, You Got a Friend in Me,
0: You've got a friend in
3: me,
0: you've got a friend in me, when the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed.
3: I mean, that is this classic song, I think, in our culture now, you know, and it's it came from this this movie, but it evokes all these images, and I think that Toy Story...
2: Okay, my I, I will say I've never seen anybody do this at karaoke, the way I've okay. seen them do the Titanic song, or like...
3: Well, wait, hold on, though. I don't think that Randy Newman is a great karaoke choice, any of his songs. I think <laughs> it's a little... It's It's even a tougher sell than Neil Diamond, in a way. it's a little it's a little too uh a little too slow i feel like i mean but by the way i will sing this uh at karaoke to you and i will prove you wrong
2: okay well you know what i want you to sing to me at karaoke i want you to sing to me the randy newman album that randy newman released at the same time as toy story Oh, really? because before he became the pixar dude right he was also doing he did a full-length musical of faust
3: Oh, wow. I mean, I know Randy Newman before Toy Story, but wait, is it like inspired by Faust or is it him?
2: I think I'm just going to need you to take a listen. Can all I just right. say, though, A, I want you to do that for me at karaoke. B, the album cover of this, just seeing the gothic lettering of Randy Newman's Faust. Yeah. I think I need this on a T-shirt.
3: Well, look, uh, first of all, great idea for a T-shirt. Head over to tpublic.com slash store slash unspool to get our uh, shirts. And if we do, we need a Randy Newman Faust shirt. I'm going to get on that immediately. <laughs> um but I was a fan of Randy Newman. Maybe it's just because of growing up on the movie Parenthood with Steve Martin, you know, uh, and like my dad would listen to Randy Newman songs, like "I Love LA," like just oh,
2: that's a great karaoke song.
3: That, there you go. So there you go. I'm so saying Randy Newman is a good uh, karaoke guy. Then,
2: <laughs> Anyway, Maybe part of my problem is that I always get Randy Newman confused with Huey Lewis and the News, and I genuinely—they're oh,
3: I... so ag- like aggressively <laughs> different. They're
2: so—I mean, they both they're... have News in the name.
3: News in the name. His name is Newman. <laughs> That's Huey Lewis and the News. <laughs> That's if, wow. I mean, there's something about Randy Newman's voice that is—I don't know—it's such a unique, special thing. And you're right; he is, I think, become known to many people as like the voice of the of the Pixar song. But I I knew Randy before that, and I remember all of his great songs. uh... Uh, hereafter um,
2: And you know what As we segue from The Randy Newman section Of this Toy Story, story yes. episode Which really just took over well, The episode I... right away I wanted to give a shout out To Randy Newman For making it into A Beyonce song A lyric from this movie Making it onto Beyonce
1: Wait. Album
3: Whoa, I never heard that. You
2: never heard that? Two and no. Four and
3: beyond. Oh my gosh, did you ever hear when DMX referenced uh, there's a rattlesnake in my boot? <laughs>
2: <laughs> what? Are you no, serious? No,
3: no. Oh. <laughs> uh, now that we're getting into Randy Newman, I will just say that uh, I cry during this movie, and one of the moments that gets me the most is basically around what we're talking about it's not a it's not a musical moment it's a it's a moment where uh Buzz Lightyear is in a moment of existential crisis he has seen a commercial of him on TV he realizes he's not special that he is just a toy and he can't fly and he basically it's it's the moment before he has his nervous breakdown and um i just want to play this one uh piece of the song. And I, I, I love this song. It gets me every single time. Love?
0: To infinity and, beyond.
3: and he's falling, falling down. Crashes on the ground. Arm falls off. and you're looking at this broken toy, that song about wanting to fly and sailing away, it gets me emotional right now. I mean, this is a dark movie. This is a dark children's film, and I think when we're talking about transitional films, Pixar has made a career out of making these films that deal with very deep issues that, yes, you can enjoy it and go like, I like toys, cute. Aliens, but when you look at it, the minute the the whole impetus of this film is a toy being replaced. Uh, uh, you know, we can all identify with this. It's about anxiety. It's about fear of the the future, the unknown. You, you, as a parent, you can see it as kids leaving the house, as someone who's starting off in their you know career. You could you know, the uncertainty of what their future holds and how they could be tossed aside for the next new shiny thing. It's this is. When you strip it all away, this is the introduction that we get to Pixar for making these movies that are dealing with really complex subjects in very accessible ways. And uh, and that, to me, is what's really impressive. And, and watching this film this time is like, it's a dark movie.
2: It's a really dark movie. It, it's even maybe a little less dark than they intended it to be at right. the beginning. I mean, the story of Toy Story, I find it interesting because this movie, this production... Is both a creative production and it's very much like a corporate industrial product. Mm. We have to talk about it that way. I mean, sure. because.
3: Well, I mean, look, you'd have to talk about everything like that. I mean, every studio is here to make a buck, right? Okay,
2: yes. But this is also different because, you know, Pixar wasn't just owned by an artist, it was owned by Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like a Steve Jobs sort of moment of saying, like, what if we started to make movies in order to advertise what my company can do with computer graphics? You know you think it's he,
3: it's, that you think it's basically that base that he's just like, let's just do this only because of that.
2: I think that that is a fundamental element of it. I mean, the interviews that he's giving when he's talking about, being interested in putting this production forward you know because there's a moment when they start to make this film at disney and like disney gets nervous and backs out and steve jobs keeps it alive and he starts giving interviews where he compares it to like when he shipped out the first laser printer you know committing to his dreams
3: but i would also say that steve jobs and i watched this interview with him on charlie rose where he basically says this is not a computer animated movie he tries to distance himself from take a listen
5: and, and computer animation is even a little bit of a misnomer. The computers don't do the animation, they do the drawing, and they crank on these drawings for like you know three hours by one of the fastest computers in the world, which is why the, the drawings are three-dimensional. But the animators act. you know I've watched John and his team work, and they're they the heart and soul of the characters. They do all the acting, not the computers.
2: So yeah, I mean that's true he hired, He hires really well he hired right. he believed. He, he put the team together, but he was also just talking about Pixar as though it was the brand he was really interested in. Like he said, like, in Hollywood, there are very few brands, just two, Disney and Spielberg, and we want to be one, too. That doesn't discount anything, but I right. think it's so interesting that when we talk about Pixar, right. we're talking about... This wave of Silicon Valley taking over the entire planet, it start, It kind of starts here, in a well, way. Well, I
3: mean, isn't it a, a way of saying, like, you know, this is, a, this is a film that we just mentioned earlier. You know, 14% of people are online at this point. You know, now, I would argue through the iPhone and, and even just the introduction of that and how that affected the market. Um, you know, Steve Jobs is always trying to find ways to use his technology to combine with people's want and desire, like, I want every song in my pocket. So that's giving you something from a creative standpoint. You're like, I love that I have this. And he is like, but you're going to use my device. And I guess I can see what you're saying is like, well, they go, everything that he does goes hand in hand. It's like, you're making him money. But I think the idea is always like, how can I make it better for you, the consumer?
2: I was like, I don't think it's necessarily a diss to point out the money and ego involved in creating art. You know, okay. We wouldn't have the Mona Lisa if a rich lady wasn't like, I want we wouldn't my have portrait Disney. done. Disney.
3: Well, yeah. Kind of. No, definitely. He's the same thing. All these people are egomaniacs.
2: Every okay, single well, no, one but of them. The difference is like Disney wasn't trying to sell computers or to try to sell the information of how to do a thing.
1: Mm-hmm. They were
2: trying to you know, promote the art within. Okay. Whereas when, when Jobs would say things like, I believe this is the biggest advance in animation since while Disney started it all with Snow White 50 years ago, he was also meaning, I invented some really cool shit that y'all should buy. Which is fine. It's right? fine. Okay. I just think it's interesting to point it out. <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you a Jobs person? I'm not. Are you doing like uh, are you no, at I, the Temple I, of? Do- I have a Samsung.
3: I, oh oh I boy! Do. Oh boy! There's just a a total commitment to quality that Pixar has, and if he was as callous as you say, or, or you're alluding to, and maybe Cal- I'm putting
2: calculating,
3: calculating. Okay. I guess what I'm saying is, if it was just about making computers or selling computers so other people would buy them to make it, then Pixar wouldn't be this brand that we look to that is this cultural safeguard. We know, like, if you're going to see a Pixar movie, 90% chance it's going to be pretty good. And I think, you know, it wasn't like, just make shit, let's just make shit. Like, And and, and I think you see that with a lot of other computer animated stuff. It's like, "Yeah, yeah, we can make it, we can make it. But Pixar really was a haven for artists and story. And and I think if he didn't care about that part of it, and I think it's important to look at that part of it, like he really cultivated that thing, so much so that John Lasseter comes over to Disney and be like, I'm going to now fix Disney because we figured out creatively what works. I don't know. I just think it's, I think he didn't just go like, we made this, now buy our computers and we're out of the movie making game. It's like, no, we're going to become a movie studio. And yes, we're using our computers the same way George Lucas does with all the Star Wars things. But he... But where George Lucas, I think, sells THX out to everybody else, he's like, no, 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 this is our, we we want to make this. And that's, I, I do feel uh, allegiance to that.
2: Listen, I think it's very, very sweet that you're, you know, making sure to defend the company that when they released a Bug's Life right after this, like included it as a promo if you bought their IMAX material. Oh, very sweet. no. It's like, <laughs> it's that's fine. a nice gift. It's a nice, he's giving you a treat.
3: How many, how many times have you bought a computer and there's nothing on it? You gotta buy Microsoft Word, you gotta buy all this shit. He's giving you a free movie. Be thankful to this guy. <laughs>
2: well, then, on this note, let's oh, yeah. get into the Lasseter of it all.
3: <laughs> yes, uh, a complicated uh, guy, right?
2: Complicated guy, complicated guy. I mean, a lot of the books on the making of Toy Story are written at a time when John Lassiter is hailed as a hero. Since then, we've known that John Lasseter had a lot of problems with sexual harassment. I would also say a lot of problems with promoting women at Pixar, a lot of problems with that company in general. Um, He's left. He went to Blue Sky. And if you want to hear a really good argument about it, about him, I would read Emma Thompson's letter about why she won't work on a Blue Sky film.
4: Oh, wow.
0: As long as
2: he's there at the company, I'd Google that and read it right now. But he's really the guy. Like It really does trace back to him. A man who kind of sounds like he was always a giant child in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, His mom was a high school arts teacher. His dad was a guy who sold parts at Chevrolet. He was a huge cartoon addict when he was little. Like, he was obsessed with cartoons. He wrote a book called The Art of Animation, which is this history of Disney. And so when he read about Disney and how Disney made Sleeping Beauty, he thought, oh, my God, you actually could have a job doing this. I could be a person who makes cartoons for a living. This is my dream. He goes to CalArts. He studies at the same time as, like, Tim Burton. He's a kid who, like, works at Disneyland during the summer breaks. I mean, he's, like, a sweeper on Tomorrowland. He works on Space Mountain. He's, like, a ride operator on Jungle Cruise. He's a Disney obsessive. And he manages to get a job at Disney, like, the week after Disney had this gigantic cull where half of the young people who are working at Disney quit. They left. They followed Don Bluth to do American Tale and The Land Before Time. And suddenly Disney is this company that wasn't really the place he dreamed of working at. It was a place with a lot of old guys who'd been there since the beginning, who didn't really want to change, who saw this young guy come in who had nothing but ambition and dreams and hope of what he wanted to accomplish and said, wait your turn. We're really going to establish a hierarchy. And then they kind of shoved him out.
3: Wasn't that because he was trying to make the brave little toaster and it was a new technology and people just were not into it. They were like, no, 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 no. That's not what we do. They really disregarded his ideas of how to update animation. I mean, Brave Little Toaster was a little bit of a forerunner to what we'll be seeing in computer animation, right?
2: Exactly. I mean, he, while he was a new person at Disney, he saw Tron. And he was like, whoa, you can do amazing things. Now, there's like a whole room of types of animation we can start trying to do. He's, I guess, really obsessed with bringing inanimate objects to life. Mm-hmm. So he was like, Brave Little Toaster. Well, and they probably like,
3: because eh. it's easier to do than humans.
2: Probably, although I also wonder, I mean, does he just walk through the world being like, hello, little Sharpie. Tell me about your life. I just broke the handle (laughs) off of the Sharpie. Maybe this heart Sharpie hates me now.
3: Now it's crying in pain the minute we leave the (laughs) studio. like, Oh,
2: God, Amy broke me. But so he's shoved out. He winds up at Pixar. He makes a short film for Pixar called Tin Toy, a toy that's being terrorized by a toddler. There's no speaking in it, but here's a little clip. The toddler, by the way, you can find this online. The toddler is freaking terrifying. It looks so scary.
5: Ooh,
3: God. This is the thing of nightmares... <laughs> uh, p- people probably don't remember Liquid Television, but it looks like that beginning part of where we're figuring out animation. That is a scary-looking baby. You could put that in like a Blumhouse film right now, and people are like,
2: whoop whoop, get it out of here. Uh, you know that but it wins the Oscar.
3: And that tin toy was originally supposed to be uh, Woody's like uh, companion in the in the film. Like that was going to be a character in Toy Story, a little callback to him.
2: Exactly. Uh, so then this film winds up with Lassiter being given the green light to make it into a feature film. And, you know, we hear a lot about, like, the, the, the Pixar process of how films get developed and then torn apart and then they're almost made and then they're torn apart again. And it's like they keep remaking the same jacket and, like, ripping it apart and it's, sewing it back up and doing It's it. the
3: reason why there's so many writers on uh, a given project just because, uh, well, you do a draft. Now you do a draft. And people come in and come out. I mean, Joss Whedon, you know... I think was only really responsible for one of the very early drafts of the script. You know, was not involved at the end, but had enough stuff in it that you know he's one of the credited writers. But how many credited writers are on this? Like five or six?
2: Uh, there's at least four or five. Yeah, yeah I, actually, there's so many that I just after I wrote Pete Doctor, I just wrote dot dot dot.
3: Well, you know what's you know what's kind of interesting when I worked at Pixar and have been up at Pixar, the way that they do their notes even is you have this big giant document when you're watching the films, anybody, it's like a Google doc and anyone can add things, comment lines, ideas. So it's this real collective up there. And in a a really amazing way, I think, uh, they make filmmaking collaborative. I think live-action filmmaking seems to be very singularly focused. It's the director's vision, and everyone's executing that vision. And here they kind of make it a little bit more like television, where you really are taking a lot of input and kind of creating the best of all worlds.
2: Yeah, and when you read about the story of how Toy Story came to be, you really get a sense of that amount of work and how they sort of set their template here, because this film is, like, unrecognizable from the first Toy Story That's that John Lasseter saw. pitched yeah. Out. Basically what happens is Terminator 2 comes into theaters and people are like, oh my God, what is that animation? We really need to do this. And one week later, Pixar and Disney signed this deal. They're like, okay, we're going to make a movie. It right. is time. And so they're like, we're going to do your toy movie. And here's the story that Lasseter had. It's about this tin toy. It gets manufactured. It gets boxed. Then it gets lost. Then it meets a ventriloquist dummy. And then it winds up in a kindergarten. And you're like, wow. okay,
3: that's your story. Well, I mean, but there are elements even of that, you know, like the toys in Toy Story 3 end up in like uh, preschool too. So it's, it's interesting how, you know, maybe a little shred of an idea. But yes, how scary would it have been if Woody was a ventriloquist dummy? I mean, that, is that something we want to see? I mean, that's Annabelle. Again, going back to the Blumhouse model of it, like, or, you know, that, that's a saw. I don't want to see a ventriloquist dummy <laughs> going around on a tricycle.
2: Yeah. And so basically what happens is like Jeffrey Katzenberg is at Disney at this Mm -hmm. moment. Right. And he's in charge. And Jeffrey Katzenberg just goes very hard on this script. Jeffrey Katzenberg is like, I want to make a movie that's hip. I want to make a movie that has edge. I want to make a movie that's cool. I don't think we should have the word toy in the title of this movie because it's going to make teenagers not show up. Interesting. And they're like, oh my God. So then they start working on this plot about like two rival toys, and Jeffrey Katzenberg is just like, we got to make it meaner. We got to make it like crueler. We got to make the Tom Hanks Woody character a total jerk, like a real sassy, evil villain. I mean, in the original drafts of Toy Story, Woody is a villain. Woody is evil.
3: Right. He was a little bit more aggressive at like getting rid of Buzz. Like, it was sort of like, I'm protecting my turf. I mean, who would want to follow that character, the dick. You made the antagonist your 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 hero. That's problematic.
2: Yeah, I mean, he basically would say things like, it's a toy, toy world. And he would bully poor little Slinky Dog. He would call him Spring Wiener.
3: Oh, wow.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is how they worked it out, finally. I mean, mm-hmm. you've heard about the terrifying day when Disney sat down. Everybody watched the cut of Toy Story that they had with this, like, asshole version of Woody. Yeah. And they were like, oh, this movie sucks. They're like, we can't do this. Like, I hate that guy. I hate this guy. This whole movie is wow. so negative. This movie does not work at all. And Disney was like, we're just not going to make this movie. And what happens is uh, somebody gives, I think they give it a talking to to Katzenberg. And Katzenberg is like, why does this movie suck? And they say, because it is no longer the type of story that John Lasseter wanted to make. That this heart and soul that this man child brought to you about, I love my toys and I want them to be alive right. and talking to me. It's not here in this film. You've pushed it way too far to the negative. You need to let him have this film back and start rewriting it again. And so that's what they do. And Steve Jobs starts funding Pixar when Disney won't. And he's like, here's your money. Rewrite the film. Make this work. Make it actually have heart. Make it a like charming kid's film again. Because
3: I want to sell computers.
2: Because I want to sell myself or my computers. Because when Toy Story comes out, I'm going to take Pixar public, which he did. Wow, and it,
3: you're really stabbing me with all I these love, Pixar I am just
2: facts. He also had to do that because, and I appreciate this about it, because Pixar going public and Pixar having a ton of money after Toy Story right. goes public... Helps Pixar have the clout to stand down to Disney, and right. as much as I'm going hard on Pixar, you know I feel that way about Disney. So sure, he bumped up his muscle in order to be like yo Disney, and right. then and, they became like evil tag team. But whatever.
3: But it allows, you know, it allows the artist to make their creation, which is I think, you know, a really interesting thing. We're talking about John Lasseter, who, you know, leaves Disney because he can't make anything, then gets his project that he loves gets killed like so in a way steve jobs sees a creative mind like his own and and is trying to protect them in a bubble and that's such a rare thing for especially someone who is trying to make a buck or trying to make something like this this has to work because if it doesn't if toy story comes out and flops that's bad for steve jobs it's true it's true it's true but to be that open and that creatively like empowering when you're a when a, your company is on the line, it's pretty bold.
2: Yeah, and you know they have this sort of tug of war almost with La- over or Disney versus Pixar. And Disney's like, come back to us now. Be a director. We appreciate right. you. Be the person you wanted to be when you were a young child just out of art school. And he had this realization, I can go to Disney and be a director, or I can stay at Pixar and I can make history. Right. So he chooses Pixar.
3: Well, I also think what's interesting about this film is you talk about that list of writers every one of the writers on Toy Story goes off to make their own, you know, seminal Pixar film, you know, these early days of Pixar. So you really have this creative environment. You you are almost creating an old studio system. Everyone's under one roof and helping each other and making their own things. And you see this, this team continue to this day kind of build and bring new people in, whether it's like Rashida Jones, I think, at a certain point is credited for Toy Story 4. And, and you, uh, you see Simon Rich, who I think is one of the the funniest uh, writers, you know, being brought in, it's kind of bringing people in. But I think where Pixar succeeds the most and where the films work the best is not when they're bringing it outside talent, it's when they are allowing the animators to have a voice and to really see a vision you know and I I think that that's that that they're able to still do this this far down the road is is really
0: Reese's peanut butter cups
3: are the greatest but let me
0: play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) that's definitely not a problem Uh, Reese's you did it you stumped
1: this charming devil
2: But yeah, speaking of the writers who came in, I mean, Joss Whedon, one of the things he wanted to do, and I think this is also part of the post-Terminator 2 influence, is he wanted to turn the character of Barbie, he wanted to have a Barbie yes. character in the film, and then have Barbie be basically Linda Hamilton in Terminator, and like swoop into Sid's house and rescue everybody. I mean, but you
3: see where this movie can go so easily bad, right? It's it's They go so deep, and it's, again, an existential crisis. We open on this moment there's two terrible days in a toy's life right it's uh, christmas and birthdays and we open up on uh, on a birthday and we end on a christmas and through it all we've we've seen you know these toys kind of grow and change but it is about accepting that life changes and it's it's such a deeper thing than a bunch of toys go on a crazy adventure, like, yes, that's true, they they have this insane buddy movie uh, adventure that they're going on, but at the core of it, the root of it, is, you know, one character is only trying to get this person back to prove that he's not a murderer, and the other one is so delusional, And and and, you know, it's like, and they're both dealing with these ideas of, being forgotten, you know, Buzz is forgotten by Star Command. Woody is forgotten by his, you know, by his owner. We've all seen a million animated films, and it's so rare to see this level of uh, pathos in them.
2: That's true. I mean, watching this, I had these moments of being like, oh man, Woody is totally Bogart and Sierra Madre right now. He's oh, yeah. like totally Bogarting out. And then they're on, when they're kind of on their own and worrying that they're being adrift in the Lost, I'm yeah. like, Like, what would Midnight Cowboy be with Woody and Buzz on their own, trying to find their place in the world? Same hat. (laughs) Same hat. Uh, I mean, to me, what's interesting about the way this movie is structured is, yeah, it's like a birthday and a Christmas. But it feels like this movie is also a fight about what does Hollywood look like? What is Hollywood drawn to? What sells tickets? Because this is also a movie that opens with a Western and then has Westerns, once the most popular franchise in Hollywood, be taken over by sci-fi, by Star Wars. And process. I think that's this huge subtext underneath here, too.
3: Absolutely. Um, and speaking about the sci-fi, we have you know, Buzz Lightyear, who we haven't really like, dug into that much. And you know, Buzz is the new shiny toy that comes into this mix, played by Tim Allen, originally conceived to be played by Bill Murray. Which, think about that.
2: I can't imagine that working, because there's a way that...
3: Really? No. Oh, I see it almost... I'm like, I, I long for that.
2: Oh, no, no, no. Really? No way. I mean, Bill Murray is just so diffident. I could imagine being like, oh, yeah, I'm the coolest. Doesn't really matter. It's fine. Whatever, guys. And Tim Allen has this kind of intensity to him. He's like mm-hmm. the best cop on the beat. And he's like, Rargh. He wants. He's alpha in a way that, that Bill Murray doesn't play that game.
3: Well, you know, it's interesting because I believe that Bill Murray and Tim Allen were both up for Galaxy Quest as well. Um, you know, who could play that captain? And I think there's a lot of similarities between both of those roles. Um, and they're very different. You're right. They're very different types. I think they're both very cocky. And in the way that they expose their cockiness is. is the way they what? Expose their cockiness. <laughs> just like John Lasseter or Pixar. Oh, God, uh, no. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, but you know what I'm saying? I think that there's a, an emotional vulnerability to Bill Murray that is a little bit more on his sleeve um, than Tim Allen often has. And I think he pulls it off amazingly well. I would even put Santa Claus on there. I think you can see this vulnerable side of him. I think he's fantastic in Galaxy Quest. Uh, And I think he does a great job here too. I just thought of Bill Murray in this role and I was like, "I I would like to see that movie.
2: I mean, you know what I think is interesting about the way that Buzz Lightyear is introduced is he's basically given the Star Wars Darth Vader introduction. Listen mm-hmm. to the sound. This is the first thing we hear about him before he speaks.
0: You're right. Very reminiscent. Buzz Lightyear to Star Command. Come in, Star
2: Command. And then he gets into this conversation with um, some of the toys, which I find fascinating, A, because it's like very brand name checky, mm-hmm. and B, just his response. So, uh, where are you from? Singapore? Hong Kong?
1: Well, no. Actually, I, I'm I'm stationed up in the Gamma Quadrant of Sector 4. As a member of the elite universe protection unit of the Space Ranger Corps, I protect the galaxy from the threat of invasion from the evil Emperor Zerg, sworn enemy of the Galactic Alliance.
0: Oh, really? I'm from play school. And I'm from Mattel. Well, I'm not really from Mattel. I'm actually from a smaller company that was purchased in a leveraged buyout.
2: I think it's sort of fascinating to hear them talk openly about the global corporate world of, like, yeah. shipping freight.
3: I do love how this movie does reference the actual toys. It is a Mr. Potato Head. It is an RC car. It 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 makes the movie a little bit more grounded because we all have this connection to these toys, and they're not, you know buzz lightyear isn't darth vader he's its own creation and, and woody is also his own creation but all the surrounding toys whether it's the green army men uh you know or even like that little uh voice recorder when you know buzz is talking in to give his meeting or the etch-a-sketch it it connects you to the room it, it doesn't feel like we're just going to make everything up and i and i feel like that was a really smart move here, even though Hasbro denied making the toys. They're like, no, no, we won't have time to do it. So they did go out and make the toys somewhere else, which probably was the biggest mistake Hasbro has ever made. It's like the same way that, you know, uh, 20th Century Fox or whoever gave Lucas the rights to make his action figures. Like, yeah, yeah, go go make your action figures. We're fine.
2: Although I think your point about mass production is really interesting. I wonder about, like, the ethics inside of this world. You know, we see... A combat Carl gets blown up by Sid. Mm-hmm. And I say a uh, combat Carl kind of deliberately. Is there, say, there this idea that because combat Carl is very openly mass-produced and he's an a uh, and not our friend combat mm-hmm. Carl, that it's okay that he dies? Because it is interesting that this movie takes this turn of eventually being like, you know, Woody's special. Woody's like a unique toy. Woody's not like a mass-produced toy. There's not that many Woody's on oh, the
3: Oh, no, no, no. I disagree. Here's the reason, because Combat Carl, you would get multiples of, like you get multiple army men, you know, you wouldn't get multiple. no household would have two Buzz Light years, no household would have two Woody's, and at the time when Woody is bought, like the same way we see Buzz looking at the shelves, there are a million Buzz Light years, it's a mass produced toy, but in the uh, context of the house, it's one. You know what I'm saying? You're only going to have one of those. That's And by the way, I guess what we're learning at the end is toys never die, even if you blow off their heads and knock off their arms. like They're still alive when they all rise up out of the sandbox. Those are all, you know, or out of the mud puddles. They're, you know, they're going to be alive. They're zombies. Yeah. So I guess... No toy dies. Every toy becomes a zombie, or just has to lay in stasis for the rest of their life. It's sad, <laughs> but I. But oh, I mean, like
2: they have polio.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah. but I guess maybe if you're talking about class, I think there's a class system yeah. for sure. Like Woody is definitely upper class, and uh, the Little Green Men they're they're lower class. I mean, one of them dies, one of them loses their footing. You know, we move on. But. Yeah,
2: I mean, I feel sorry for the Little Green Men. I mean, the Little Green Soldiers, guys, like they. You, By the way, the voice of the head soldier, the head drill, is mm-hmm. um, Arlie Ermey. He's the drill sergeant in Full Metal Jacket.
3: He is indeed. He's been in, uh, <laughs> everything. I mean, the, the classic voice actor. I mean, the voice acting in this across the board. You have Jim Varney as Slinky Dog. You have Don Wrinkles as Mr. Potato Head. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. You have Annie Potts, again, we're we'll going to talk to her in a little bit, as Bo Peep, who is an interesting character because she's not technically a toy. She's ceramic. Um, And she was supposed to be part of From Andy's Sister's Room, uh, you know, as part of like a lamp set. Uh, But it's interesting how, you know, they cast these really amazing voice actors. You have John Ratzenberger as Ham, who said an amazing quote about his character. And I loved it. Something along the lines of, the thing with Ham is, if he has money in him, he's heavier. So he can't move around that much. So he's gained a little bit of weight. But if he doesn't have money in him, he's poorer, and he can move around, but he's not making, you know, he's not making, you know, he's not saving any money. So he's really damned if you do and damned if you don't. I mean, Ham is, you know, walking this, uh, this razor's edge of having too little money or having too much money, and they both affect him negatively.
2: Wow, man. It's just like life. I Wait.
3: mean, look, everybody in this movie goes fucking deep.
2: <gasps> Let's hear a little bit of Ham's voice just to honor Ratzenberger for being the man who was in every single episode.
0: Hey, Ham, look, I'm Picasso. I don't get it. You uncultured swine? Oh. What are you looking at, The
3: hockey puck? <laughs> and by the way, not only every episode of Toy Story, every Pixar movie or at a certain point, Almost every Pixar movie.
2: Yeah, I think he is in every Pixar movie. So that idea, that example, by the way, of like a Picasso joke with Mr. Potato Head mm-hmm. is my favorite type of putting an adult comedy into a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that's the sort of joke where you're like, oh, I'm 11 – And I now understand who Picasso is. Right. You know, but also I'm an adult and I'm here with my 11-year-old. And that joke was pretty good.
3: Yeah. I mean, look, the best stuff, I mean, going back to like Warner Brothers cartoons, I think works this line of being good for parents and, and good for adults. I think that parents watch this movie or adults watch this movie, not parents, and you get something totally different from it than a kid does. I think a kid just sees, you know, Woody and Buzz- going on an adventure, and they're in, you know, a a tank full of aliens, and they're racing after a truck, and, you know, they're not seeing any of the, I don't think they're seeing any of the the downside of it, or, you know, so I I think that this movie is pretty deft with how they handle all of that.
2: I mean, you have to admit, though, like, the main thing that the comedy of Toy Story is built on is homonyms. It's all homonyms. What do you mean? It's all homonyms. Like, okay, here, listen to this Bo Peep. Oh, hi, Bo. Hi. I wanted to thank you,
4: Woody, for saving my flock. Oh,
3: hey, it was, uh,
4: nothing. What do you say I get someone else to watch the sheep tonight?
3: (laughs) Hell yeah.
2: (laughs) I... Remember, I'm just a couple of blocks away. So, two things. She says, I'm just a couple of blocks away as she walks by some alphabet blocks. Uh-huh. This whole thing is on it. You swines and blah, 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 That's blah, blah. It's playing
3: in the world. Hey, etch, draw
2: and It's a good. I mean, it is. It's playing in the world, but it's also homonym humor. But also, Bo Peep is like DTF, right?
3: I mean, of course. I mean, 100%. I mean, I think that, you know, why wouldn't she be? I mean, they got a lot of spare time to kill. School lasts, what, a couple hours a day. You got you to gotta fill your days with something. Um, I mean,
2: I love her. Like, basically, every line that that Bo Peep has in here is her being, like, hot for Woody.
3: Yeah. I mean, and Bo Peep is this character that, you know, is the voice of reason. When when the mob mentality kicks in here and everyone is willing to give up on Woody, who is essentially their de facto leader, uh, she's the only one who speaks reason or tries to understand, you know, more about what happened there. You know, she's shocked. But, you know, she, I mean— is the voice of reason. And I think we're going to be really surprised at where she goes in Toy Story 4 because her character kind of makes a giant resurgence.
2: Well, wouldn't you be heartbroken if you were sleeping with Woody and you found out he was a murderer?
3: Well, you didn't know. She gives him the benefit of the doubt. I would hope that any people, the person that you're in a relationship with or the person I'm in a relationship with, that if it looked like we committed murder, they would ask us first, like, what happened before we would just be uh, sent off. You know, they're, you know, they would give us a, the, a fair shake.
2: You know, if you're a toy, Mm -hmm. I assume you're just chewed on by other children all the time and you're covered in, like, children's DNA and saliva. Mm -hmm. Does that mean you could actually commit more crimes because the DNA left behind would be somebody else and not your own?
3: Wow. So now you're talking about the DNA living on a surface that is not uh, a living surface. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that goes. I don't think you can swab DNA from... uh... Don't
2: they just, like, steal people's straws and stuff? And they're like, aha, we got you. You're a murderer.
3: You know what? I don't know if detectives are stealing straws, but... I'm gonna say yes to this and I'll let uh, I'll let our corrections and omissions of team for the next episode tell us what we're for right or wrong. Um I'm getting a sense though, Amy, you don't love this movie, you appreciate this movie, you don't love it.
2: There's a lot I really like about this movie. You don't love it. There's a lot I really like about this Which movie. Which
3: is your favorite? Toy Story One, two, or three. Or do you not like any of them that much?
2: I like them all. I think Ah,
3: I, you don't like any of them. Oh
2: my god. I really appreciate What's your favorite the Pixar detail. Movie? Work in here. I like how I like how I like how Andy is written on Woody's foot with the N backwards. But when he writes Andy on Buzz's foot, he writes his name correctly, and you can see that Andy is growing up and he can write his own name.
3: Wow, that's oh, that's yeah that's, that's one of the, I think that's one of the I'm things that most people talk about.
2: I'm pro literacy here. Uh, <laughs>
3: It's one of the one, one of the most endearing moments is the uh, the penmanship uh, of Andy's character. Um, you know, one of the cool things about Andy too is he, uh, you know, was a real kid, and they've as he's come back, he's aged with the film, so that's always a, an interesting thing. It's the same kind of character uh, growing
2: up and eventually being erased. So um, I appreciate the terror in this. I appreciate that when you go to Sid's house, they have the shining carpet. Mm-hmm. All over his upstairs You I appreciate
3: love detail Your attention to detail But you don't like the detail In homonym jokes
2: I didn't say I didn't like The homonym jokes I just pointed out That the heartless, humor Amy. Is mostly heartless. homonym You know what else is heartless? A toy A toy is literally heartless So maybe I'm just a toy Talking to you about this movie
3: uh, No I think what they do Is it's so great I mean Talk about the emotion in Woody's eyes like I mean you see so much going on there whether it's him getting burned through the skull with uh sunlight or just you know seeing himself being replaced by this brand new shiny toy it's a toy they're not doing anything his eyes aren't going it's not like being like puss in boots when he's upset you know and he and he he starts crying it's still playing by the rules of this so you this movie doesn't make you cry
2: mm no, I'm I'm very bad at crying, but okay. but I really I Let's think one of my that. favorite things is when you get in. <laughs> we're getting into that here. Oh my god! <laughs> I really like when you go to Sid's bedroom and you see all this creativity, all these like right. wild toys, like made with like one arm over here and one spring over here. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I
3: figured you would like Sid. <laughs> I figured you'd I do be good. like Sid. Sid, Sid. Sid's
2: into Megadork. I'm Megadork. into Megadork. We're both that. into Megadork.
3: But, you know, here's the thing. Like, is Sid a bad kid? He's a bad kid through the eyes of toys, right? Like, he, in many respects, I was thinking about this. He's a creative kid. Like, I mean, yes, he's destroying toys, but that's what they're meant to be played with. And he's not playing with them in a, you know, to keep them in a box kind of way. I mean... When you personify them, it's a little sad when you see that doll's head on the the creepy thing. That was another thing that Hasbro was like, oh yeah, the reason why we're not doing this is because we do not want to make those fucking Sid toys. You know, does he have respect for the money that it costs to buy those toys? Is something I say to my children all the time. Uh, you know, probably not. I mean, that's his probably biggest downfall, but I wouldn't say he's like, I wouldn't say he's like a
2: villain. He's just I would. Kid. He's a total villain. He like, He's just a kid playing with toys in the backyard. But he tortures the toys to get revenge but, at his sister. He does it to make her cry. Uh,
3: That's the sister
2: is his ultimate toy.
3: But he brought home he brought home Buzz, and to, she took him because he fell off the stoop when he was trying to fly, and then he. But that was his toy. His toy was Buzz.
2: He stole her doll first and cut its head off. Okay, sure. And then, and then I love that her little scene where she's like, oh, Mrs. Nesbitt.
3: Oh, that's a great scene when he's losing <laughs> his mind. Uh, but I want to talk and about. That
2: throwaway joke about Marie Antoinette and her little sister with the headless dolls. See, look at this. You like these jokes. This is adult jokes.
3: Um, I know that you like Sid, and I wanted to play a clip from Toy Story the musical for you. Now, we talked about how it's not technically a musical. Here is technically a Toy Story musical. So enjoy. Uh, this is Sid towards the end of the film uh, or the end of the stage play. Here we go. <music>
0: shoulders of giants, and so will you, Buzz
4: Lightyear, when I launch you into permanent orbit. We're going to make Spaceman history. Houston to mission control. We are
3: approaching the launch pad area. You can watch the entire hour show. (laughs) uh, And as you hear a little kid in the audience in the moment, go, no.
5: (laughs) Um,
2: I mean, here's the thing. I don't think Sid has good parenting. Mm-hmm. He's able to buy mail-order fireworks. I think you get a okay. sense that there is some sadness happening in his But his mom household. seems lovely.
3: She seems aware that he's around. She's not ignoring him. The dog <laughs> seems a little violent. But, I mean, maybe is it, is it the idea that— Oh,
2: my that... God. I just had this vision of a toy story where the toys have to stop Sid from committing a school shooting.
3: Oh, jeez, Amy. Geez. <laughs> <What>? um, <laughs> but I think that there was—I think, uh, by the way, uh, we should definitely get you on the Pixar development team— <laughs> Um, you know, great ideas. I don't think that Sid's that bad. I like, I know that he's bad to these toys, but I think he's also just a kid. Like, you know, he's hurting toys, he's cutting toys off, and maybe he's being rough to his sister, but that's like sibling rivalry. I just think I would I hate to label Sid as being a real jerk. I think that Sid eventually maybe works at Toy Barn at the end, where I think Sid Sid's story ends up maybe. I a, think he's
2: a garbage man.
3: Oh, right. That's what he is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What if Woody, um, you know, scared him about toys? And he's like, all right, well, maybe now I'll only take things that have been thrown in the trash. He's rescuing them. He's a savior. He's a Superman.
2: (laughs) But let's listen to that scene, though, where Woody scares him. I love this because it's so exorcist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Play nice. God, I love how the audio on his voice also shifts from being inside a recorded thing to being right in your face. Oh,
3: I know. It's so, so aggressive.
2: And I mean, that really must be like the power of an Annabelle movie is we've all done evil things to our toys. And we all know deep down they could have a lot of resentment against us. And they deserve to attack us, probably.
3: You know, this movie plays with two things really well, which is the fantasy of having a toy that is... You know, alive when you're not there, and I think you know it's an an idea that we all have thought of before this film came out, and now it's like ingrained in ev- the the mass culture. And then it's also like, you know, you're you're in this room with all these strange toys. You know, they could come and attack you. I mean, uh, I don't know. It it plays horror and comedy and fantasy. All it, it's a it's a fine line. Again, it's a it's a razor's edge that we're walking. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see.
0: So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple card issued by Goldman Sachs bank, USA salt Lake city branch subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
3: Amy, I'm so excited that we actually have two people involved with toy story here to talk to us a little bit about the legacy of this film. Uh, one is just a personal fave. She has been there since the very beginning. She plays Bo Peep. Uh, You know her from TV shows like Designing Women, uh, movies like Ghostbusters. And she made a very special appearance uh, at my birthday party uh, because I, for uh, I think my 10th birthday, invited everyone to go see Who's Harry Crumb*. She was in that, and I will never forget her. Also, just amazing and pretty in pink. I mean, this is an amazing career that she has. Even now on young Sheldon, she doesn't stop working. She doesn't stop being amazing. The awesome Annie Potts. How connected do you feel to like Bo Peep? I mean, it's been a a long journey with this character and this is like a big evolution in this new Toy Story film, right?
4: Yes, it has. I've I've been working on it for over four years.
3: Oh, wow.
4: it's been a long, interesting thing. And of course, you know, I came on originally 25 years ago. Yeah. I I wasn't interested in voice acting. I wasn't. Tim Burton had a show called Family Dog that was on a Spielberg anthology series called Amazing Stories, I think. And uh, um, Brad Bird invited me in to do something uh, on that with the you know the legendary stan freeberg
3: yes. okay yeah
4: i didn't really know anything about voice acting or anything and i was mortified i would do each line each phrase i mean a hundred times and uh i was like oh come on you've got one that works <laughs> <laughs> and uh and then years later i got a, a message from my agents who said uh you know, these people want you to do the first ever fully computer animated cartoon, and I was like, ah, I'm so busy. I had a, I had a toddler and a uh, teenager, and it, I was doing a series, and it was like, and none of any of those parts of what you just said, fully animated, right? Computer. <laughs> it, it, it was like no. So they said, well, if you would just look at their shorts, they've sent you um, a collection of them. And uh, a messenger should have dropped them off today. I was like, I'll look at that and I'll get back to you. Totally forgot about it. Like a couple of weeks go by, manager calls me back and he's like, did you get a chance? Because they're calling again. I said, oh, Jesus, I haven't looked at it. Uh, But I will. I will. Totally forgot about it again. (laughs) Uh, And then I came home, I don't know, a week or so later. And my toddler had opened some mail, found those and Played it, and he attacked me when I came in the door, and said, "Mommy, mommy, come look." Uh, he'd been sitting there all day watching them over and over again. I watched a couple of them. And I was like, "Hang on a minute, mommy has to go make a call." <laughs> and uh, so I called him up and said, "Oh yes, I absolutely do want to be a part of this," um, and that's how it started.
2: Well, so when you show up to work like that first for the very first movie. What's the mindset you're in to play Bo Peep, to, to be this voice?
4: Well, you know, like starting rehearsal on anything, it's like, you know, you want to know from the creators and the director uh, what, what kind of character they have in mind. It's like, why have you hired me? <laughs> um, when you're literally disembodied, all you have is the audio component of your, of your being. It becomes a very different thing. Um I found that the uh, the Pixar guys are they've all got the golden ear. You know, so they really do kind of know exactly what they want. What I learned from Brad Bird long ago is like, no, we're going to probably going to do it 200 times <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> until we have exactly the inflection that we
3: want. I had a small part in Incredibles, The Second Incredibles, and doing it against Brad Bird, it was this intense process where you feel like, am I doing anything right? But they just yes. want uh, a thing. And as when you worked on this, obviously, different directors have been in the process. Were there different styles, or is it exactly the same way? Where you're kind of in the room with the director, or or do you get to have a little bit more freedom now that the character has been established?
4: There, is, I mean, some ground rules, of course, are laid already. So. Right, um, But it, with Toy Story 4, my character has grown and changed in uh, wonderful ways. Uh, those had to be uh, addressed. And uh, it's just, you know, it's, I, I've always loved rehearsal. I just love it. I could be in rehearsal. If somebody said, you're never going to actually go on stage. You're just going to rehearse. <laughs> <laughs> it would be like, I'd be good with that. And yes, I have been. There when I thought, I don't know why they hired me because they don't like anything I'm doing. They want me to do it over and over again, not hearing the correct thing. And then right before I saw the the finished product of this latest one, I became convinced that I would be the first actor in history that completely ruined a Pixar picture. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, that's the actor's brain. Yeah. I don't believe I did that, um, but I, <laughs> I did have some night sweats about it.
3: <laughs> were you a little bit nervous in the sense that you did the first two films and then the third one, you know, you're in the background on, on the video cassette, but you're not there. And I think fans were upset about that. And was there a part of you that said, oh, I guess that that chapter now is closed? Or did you always know that, you know, the, the plan was that you would be coming back around?
4: I did not. I did not. I just, you know, like any actor when I uh wasn't asked to be in it, I thought, well, I I just guess I don't have any value for them. Right. <laughs> um but uh, then they called me for this one and uh it was like, well, the reason you weren't in the third is this. And uh uh it was like, wow. That's re that's really nice. Um so anyway, Bo is back.
3: And and Bo is like you said changed. Like the arc of this character, at least from what I've seen of the trailer so far, seems like, you know, this character has really emotionally grown. I think, you know, obviously starting off a little bit more like mm-hmm. you were the voice of reason, the damsel in distress in the beginning, and now it looks like you're like a little bit like of an ass kicker in this and this movie too. Like you look like you're you're kind of taking care of everybody now.
4: Well, I think that it's uh, they're super smart, right? (laughs) These guys. We should have a woman president right now. Absolutely. But but, uh, we won't get into that. But you know, (laughs) I mean, women are kicking ass. Yeah. And more and more, and I think that they have um, they have moved the the female force in these movies to the fore now. And Bo's there to, you know, uh, hold that standard.
2: So when when the first Toy Story was being made, you know, the story I've always heard was that Disney kept kind of elbowing Pixar and trying to shut down production, being like, we're not sure about this at all. Was any of that stress trickling to you? Did you know about it at the time?
4: I wasn't aware of any of that at the time. Um, I have heard the tales of that since. And (laughs) of course, (laughs) you know. Looking in that rearview mirror, you go, well, that was really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, hindsight is often uh, like that. And when um, when you're dealing with a product that is so innovative in every way, you know, they don't know what to do with it.
3: Is it kind of mind-blowing to think of yourself? You had this amazing career. You've worked on so many fantastic projects. You're still working on amazing projects. But you have... I, at least from my count, at a minimum of two action figures of you now. You know, people can. <laughs> I mean, is that a kind of a crazy thing? Of you know, to 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 the like, people can go out to the store and buy you. I mean, that you know, that it's like a crazy. It's a crazy thing to think, right? To have that.
4: Yes, that is a little. Uh, that is one of the the oddest things about the whole uh, deal. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I sometimes think. Of that, you know, uh, just like the Toy Story movies, that now I I have been captured in um, uh, a, a doll form and that little children, as they will, are, you know, pulling off my limbs and my head and <laughs> leaving me under the couch and running over me with a dolly stroller and, you, you, you know. Uh, but, of course, there are those who are taking me to bed with them as well as a comfort. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, uh, and now with this new one and, uh, her being <clears throat> kick ass, yeah. uh, you know, I think, you know, she's a great role model for little girls. So i I don't mind, you know, having been made into a form that a little person could hold in their hand as a kind of talisman, like, don't fuck with me. <laughs> oh
2: will kick your ass. I mean, I'm curious, like, do you in the cast, you know, Tom Hanks, who you've been sort of playing against on screen as cartoons for 25 years now, do you feel extra bonded to him in person when you see him in things, even though you've been just doing voice performances together? Does Toy Story <laughs> still feel like kind of a family?
4: Well, you know, we don't. It's uh, usually you work uh, just as a single uh, actor with the director. We will see each other for publicity events, but otherwise, we don't really see each other. I was uh, uh, very fortunate this time around that um, Tom and I did a lot of recording together. Oh, um, fun. That was uh, really wonderful. Fun. He's such a. Well, not only is he, of course, the loveliest human being in the world, um, he's just so sweet and so much fun, and all in, 195% with, with uh, you know, dedicating himself to Woody. Uh, it's just, uh, it, you, you can hardly have more fun than that, really.
3: And did you find that your performance was changed because you got to interact with somebody else? Because, again, you're right, you don't get a chance to do, do that. You actually have to, you can actually... Act with somebody.
4: Yes, um, and I think that they felt because of the nature of of the relationship in this new one that that it, it would it, we would benefit the film would benefit from us being together, and uh, uh, so so they made that happen.
2: Well, so you know, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is you know this idea of a list of the greatest films of all time and what we would take off, what we would put on, and. At the risk of embarrassing Paul here, I think he's too shy to say this out loud, I think if there's a film he could put on the list, it would be Ghostbusters. Ah, uh, yeah.
3: A big fan of that yeah, film. Yeah.
2: It's, it's a, you know, again, that
4: was, uh, it was so incredibly fresh, new, authentic. Nothing, it just, there's never been anything like it. And uh, there had never quite been anything like, All those guys who came out of SNL, I mean, it was, and Bill had already done some of the stripes kind of things with some of the other guys. But it was the first full on, I remember reading the script thinking, oh, my God, this is like the funniest thing I've ever read. With Toy Story, I never have seen a script.
3: Oh, interesting. So you're just doing it in like little scenes. And I imagine you said you spent four years yeah, on this yeah. one. So you're just probably. Yeah, you, don't know,
4: you don't know anything about it. You just go in and they have lines and the director says, and in this, this is what's happening, but I never
2: saw a
3: script. That's so interesting. <gasps> is I there, love
2: it. Is there a line that's always rattling through your head that you had to do a bunch as vote peep?
4: I was reading to some children in a classroom a couple of weeks ago and, uh, they were like second grade, and one of the little girls went, you're in that movie, aren't you? And uh, in the Toy Story movie, and I said, I am, I am. And uh, somebody else said, oh, you're a peep. And I said, that's right. And they said, do it, do it, do a line. So I did the, uh, I think this is a line anyway. Is, <laughs> is the, uh, so Woody, why don't you come up and... See me sometime. That, you know. And of course they, they they you know, had peals of laughter and giggles after that.
3: Annie, this has been fantastic talking to you. Thank you for spending some time with us. And uh thank you. All right. All right. Take
4: Bye-bye. care guys. Thanks, bye bye. Appreciate
3: it.
2: Bye. Uh that was fantastic. and You know what? Love her. Now it is time to talk to the director of Toy Story 4. We have Josh Cooley. Josh, by the way, he wrote Inside Out, and then he got bumped up to direct this. So, wow. hey, let's. Welcome I'll be
3: really quiet now.
2: <laughs> let's welcome in Josh. Oh, so Josh, my first question I want to ask is: What is it like to be the Buzz Lightyear of this franchise? You are the shiny new toy walking into a room that's been around for twenty-five years.
5: Uh, <laughs> oh, wow! Um, first of all, it's a um, it's a huge honor to just even be asked to to direct this one, this film and. I I love this these movies so much I I, you know the first two I didn't work at Pixar so until I didn't work at Pixar to 2003 so I saw the first two in the audience or just in the movie theaters as an audience member just like everybody else so I came into it as a huge fan as well so in the same way that Buzz Lightyear had no idea what was going on in the room um that's how I felt at first too I was just like what what this is a weird place what's going on here? you know that kind of interesting kind of but um it's it's just a huge honor.
2: I'm so interested in the changes in technology since then. Like I heard this fact that you can you can render the original Toy Story 1 now faster than you can actually watch it. That that's how amazing the computers yeah. are. And yet I love that what you guys have done have is also staying true to the way these original characters look. I mean these characters were as great as they could be in 1995 and you've honored that. You haven't made them more complicated.
5: Yeah, well the, the one thing we've tried to do throughout all these films is just stay true to the aesthetic of the original. I mean, the, the original had its limitations just because of the technology at the time. But one, the three things kind of we try to keep going is um, the design aesthetic, which is exaggerated shapes. So if you look at something like Andy's bed, it's it's the legs of it are, are much thicker towards the bottom because that's where we're going to be spending most of the time in this world is down on the floor with the toys. So things are much larger down there. Um, and then we also have uh, realistic textures. So um, the floors are, you know, they look like you can, you can touch them and feel them. They have this realistic look to them and then um, the theatrical lighting. So even just having the lighting feel like it's, it's lit like a stage almost. So even though the technology is advanced and we're able to make things look even more realistic with the textures, we still stuck with the, the same things that make it feel like a Toy Story film.
2: I mean, I think it's interesting that you're using the words like exaggerated combined with realistic because I've been wondering, I mean, is there a point where a cartoon can look too realistic where it just looks live action?
5: Absolutely. And there were times when we would be doing some tests on scenes and it, it would look real. It looked too real. And we actually we'd have to pull it back. So it is, um, you know, the computer can do it. and But that's not exactly what we were going for. And there are, there are scenes in this film where people say, man, it looks so real. Like we had this huge rainstorm at the very beginning. And uh, they're like, oh, man, the rain looks so real. And the reality is that we like exaggerated the raindrops by like 700 percent or something like that to make <laughs> it feel more visceral to the toys. You know, so I, I just love that people are coming across with the feeling that it's real, but you actually look at it, it's, it's way more exaggerated.
2: I mean, we hear a lot about the Pixar brainstorming process, about how many ideas go into it and best ideas winning. When you were coming up with the idea of the spork, what other kind mm-hmm. of creations did you kick around? And you're like, okay, 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 but before we went with the spork.
5: You know what? The, the spork was the first, and it was nobody else drew anything else except for a what? spork when, when it was young, <laughs> serious. That was the first drawn, first thing drawn, and we were laughing so hard, and then it was just variations on that. Like the spork was always the the base of that character for some reason. It to, the, well, sporks are funny. I think that's the reason.
2: Well, I'm curious then about the power of empathy. You know, like, what is it that audiences are willing to bring to an animated character that we might not even bring to a human character,
5: to a spork? The way that I think about it is that um, what that character actually physically is doesn't Really matter in the Toy Story world. I I think that that's part of the reason these movies work so well is is something somebody like Woody who um, you know the very first film that movie is just about a guy who doesn't want to lose his job. If you really think about it, and 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 when his job is threatened and something he really cares about, he becomes anxious and um, fearful and angry, and to the point where he's willing to do something. You know he's willing to go to the links. So he has to go to push a guy out the window to stay popular. And so all those emotions that he has are all real emotions and, and very human emotions. So I think that, that something like empathy um, is just another emotion that we can, we've all experienced. And I think that that that's part of what's fun of making an animated film is that, you know, this is a toy or a spork or a, or a monster or an emotion or whatever the, the actual character is kind of doesn't matter. It, we're we're just showing that they, that these characters are still human by expressing these emotions. So I think that's kind of well, how people are connecting to it.
2: I mean, living in this world, directing this film for so long, has it made you be more empathetic to things like a remote control that doesn't work? Do you live in a world that's more like every object <laughs> I should treat more sacredly? <laughs>
5: You know what? It has made me kind of—I don't know—a little bit, a little bit. Yes, now I think about it, absolutely. My—I was having—I was helping my daughter clean her room, and um, she has a ton of stuffed animals, and I'm thinking she doesn't need all these stuffed animals. We should get rid of them. And it was—I couldn't do it. I couldn't put them in a plastic bag and to 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 get rid of them. I, I. and I went online to find out how to do it. And they, one of the things I read said, don't look the stuffed animal in the eye as you, put it, <laughs> as you put it away. And I think that's what it is. You look at it in the eye, and automatically there's a connection to the memory of why, how this came into your life. And there's empathy. And you're like, oh, I can't let it go. So, yes, I've struggled with
2: that. <laughs> that makes me think like Marie Kondo is like the ultimate villain in Toy Story 5.
5: Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> awesome. Well, Josh Cooley, it's been great talking to you. Congrats on the film.
5: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you.
2: Absolutely. Take care. Have a good day.
3: Who's your favorite character?
2: Who's my favorite character in here?
3: Yeah.
2: Ooh. I mean, the only of these toys I ever had, no, I didn't even have him. I wanted a Mr. Potato Head and I didn't have one.
3: Wow. So
2: I want to say Mr. Potato Head by default. I always really wanted okay. one.
3: Okay. That was what you like. All right. I like it. I have a, I have um
2: But you have an automatic answer for this?
3: I do. I mean, I'm not going to go with the easy answer of, like, one of the main characters, because obviously they're, you know, iconic. I was going to go with uh, the little aliens from Pizza Planet. Um, You know, I think that they're really just a fun, (laughs) crazy – There's a crazy idea that they're, you know, waiting to be chosen, uh, you know, and and ultimately hit this weird demise. But I think that, that, like, when you first meet those, you know, little green aliens, it's – I don't know. They really just make me laugh. I really enjoyed those characters. I think they were just like a really funny personification of a squeeze toy. Let's I mean, play
2: that clip because I love that that plot point. Who's in charge here? The Claw.
0: <laughs> the Claw is our master. The claw chooses who will go and who will stay. This is
3: ludicrous.
0: Hey bozo, you got a brain <laughs> <in> here? <laughs>
2: oh no. I mean, A, that's so awesome because it is straight up where Sausage Party took this element and then turned it into you have been chosen. Yeah. I love Sausage Party so much. Such a funny movie. Also, I love that Sid is in the background playing on basically an alien game. Mm-hmm. Where it's like there's like whacking face huggers and vomiting green alien sledge. Like I really want to play in this. Arcade.
3: I I like that too. And I think one of the big misses of the Toy Story Land that I was recently at, I'll post a picture online, uh, was that they didn't have a full recreation of that. I was like, why don't they just have like a full recreation of this pizza place? They have a place that they call Pizza Port, but it's not. It's not. It's not a full recreation. I it's not want a, a full re- recreation. I want a whole thing.
2: I mean, here's what I think is really interesting though about. The Woody and Buzz dynamic mm-hmm. Because there's a part of Woody That appeals to the Leslie Nope in me mm-hmm. And Woody is right about one thing That I think is very important Woody genuinely cares about Andy And loves Andy I would say that Buzz is barely aware of Andy's existence And doesn't actually care that much about Andy Until Absolutely. possibly the end of the film
3: I don't think he cares about Andy At the end of the film either I think he cares about Woody getting back to Andy
2: Yeah, I think he cares about his job And so whenever Woody is like You don't have the same investment in this that I do. He's absolutely correct.
3: But one day he might, but he'd have to come to the realization that he is not who he is. Like he has to give over to himself. When when Woody gives that speech to Buzz, I can't believe I'm talking so passionately about this movie. When Woody gives that speech to Buzz and he says, You're not just a toy. You are, you know, I'm paraphrasing like you are the special person in this. In this boy's life, you have this ability to make him happy and make a difference. Like you are the most important person, but you're just not the, not the, in the way that you see it. It's such a beautiful, you know, ode to what toys mean to us. And I think that at that point is Buzz Aloud to commit to Woody because he doesn't have a room for anyone else in his life. He's this cocky guy. He's a single guy in the city. He's just like, I'm doing my shit. I'm fucking every day. I'm drinking every night. I'm waking up late. Get out of my way. And and Woody's like, no, no, the the beauty of this life is having a partner, having someone that can actually care for you. You 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 don't have to be an island. And I think, you know, as the films progress, we see this evolution of, of buzz. And I think that's one of the cool things about the films. But, Uh, But he could never find that until he gives up who he is and becomes aware of how he fits into this world.
2: I mean, you're right. Like, this is a real movie with real emotions and real camera work. I love how there's, like, camera shots here taken from Evil Dead. Yeah. Tracking shots zooming up and down the stairs. I love all that. What I really love about the animation in particular is even though the humans all look like they're from planet suck your brains out through your nose, Mm -hmm. the humans are fucking terrifying. What I appreciate about the animation is really the texture, because I feel like the main thing that they're really learning how to do here is have waffle knit on like couches, is have, you know, grain over here on this part of the door but also just the light and the texture sort of playing over each other. I think that's what they really do the best here. The lighting in here is amazing. Like, I love it when you can see the shadows from the windows playing across the fabric. I love it when you can see the light hitting the characters and then the characters reflecting off of the wooden floors. It's yeah. like a very clean floor for children. Well,
3: I mean, but that's one of the things that you see, like, in, we talk about Bo Peep. She's ceramic. You see a sheen off of her. You see certain things in his eyes. There is there is a beautiful work, you know, use of light and shadows. And it, it's actually beautifully directed
2: it really is oh gosh whenever you're inside buzz's helmet and you see the reflections Mm -hmm. like that he sees on his own plastic it's so beautiful and it really is the smudges too that i love when you get the sense of fingerprints on things and by the end the way that buzz is so used now yeah it reminds me of like having to go over to my cousin's houses and all of their toys were so gross and i didn't want to touch them because they all look sticky and they make buzz look sticky Yes, And they think about making Buzz look sticky. They think about adding that to him so he looks used.
3: I totally agree, and I think that they continue in each film to introduce new toys. I mean, in Toy Story 4, it's a spork. You know, it's a, it, it literally is a spork, uh, you know, that it's like a kid made in like a preschool. I, I don't know because I haven't seen the film yet. But um, that idea that anything can be a toy and the way that they kind of – show all these different types. They finally did get Mattel to give them Barbie. And, you know, and then you have evil Ken played by Michael Keaton. Oh, it's so great. I mean, it is one of the best. One of the best Michael Keaton roles is in Toy Story.
2: Now, I will say, though, there is one thing in this film that I find to be a little bit dangerous and a little bit contagious, mm-hmm. which is that when they're having a really hard time writing it, you know, Lasseter and Doctor – They went to go to a Robert McKee seminar. You know Robert McKee, Mm -hmm. right? Of
3: course. Yes. Robert McKee. Uh, Literally wrote the book on screenwriting.
2: Literally wrote the book. I think he's one of those people who... Wrote a book on screenwriting that became so influential, him the Save the Cat guy, mm-hmm. that movies have become a lot more boring because perhaps they were right-ish at one point, but then they mutated into being the all-consuming type of story. That well, no then longer, development I think,
3: execs read that and they go, "Well, are you are you saving the cat on page five? Or are you doing all that sort of stuff?" So like, it's sort of like the idea of the reader now is going on is going connected to these books.
2: Exactly. So I don't want to say that like. I dislike Robert McKee forevermore. He has doomed us. But Mm -hmm. I do think there are things that this film picked up on that then became so powerful that then because people loved this film, it became this contagious idea. And I do think this film helps make movies more mass produced, to Mm -hmm. be honest. Okay. I do want to single out though one thing I absolutely hate about Robert McKee that I think happens in so many movies I see, not even necessarily this one, not in this one, actually but in other movies that drive me insane. Right. Robert McKee had this idea that the best way to keep an audience's interest is by withholding information, right? Mm-hmm. So he was like, don't tell them everything, make them wonder what's going on, like make them be like, "Oh man, why are these people acting this way?" and then tell them the exposition like at the very end. And I hate that.
3: Well, we were talking about that in uh in Vertigo. Like, you yeah. know, and, and and the difference there is Hitchcock did reveal it, and I think you said that you wouldn't enjoy it if you didn't know.
2: Like the way that Lasseter, for example, talked about story is he said that he it reminded him a lot of his brother. Who's, his brother was an interior designer in mm-hmm. Japan. And so he was like, I learned from my brother that the way that you make a story is sort of like how you do it in fashion design. You either take a really wild fabric and use it to make kind of a classic shaped garment. Or you take a classic fabric and then you make a really crazy pattern with it. But you don't make crazy on crazy or classic on classic. Mm. You mix and match. It's the combination of knowing... When to break free and when to keep it together, and I think for him, Toy Story was, was an example of like, I'm doing something crazy. This is a crazy fabric, right? So I will have the story be relatively traditional and simple and easy to follow.
3: So, what do we say? Do we say that helped them or hurt them? I think it's fine. <laughs> I think that Amy's review a... <laughs> is it's fine. Well, what do the other critics say? What do what do, what do how do, how is it responded to? Uh, my passionate defense of these characters, how, how do people respond to this?
2: <laughs> well, here's the thing. Toy Story is famous for being one of the only 100s on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. You know, it's one of those unbroken, don't you dare right. mess with this. And the only person who's ever really dared to mess with it is Armand White. Of course. Okay, of course. Who wrote the first negative review of Toy Story 3. He also apparently disliked Toy Story 1, but he wrote his um, review of Toy Story 1 in a paper called The City Sun from Brooklyn, which then went defunct. And I couldn't find any of their archives anywhere. I really went looking for it. Oh, wow. So in lieu of having a negative review to present for Toy Story 1, I thought I would do the opposite. I would bring Armin White's review of Toy Story 2, which he really liked. So here is Armand White, the infamous Toy Story 1 and 3 hater, sticking up for Toy Story 2. Every child is a bourgeois child, and every adult too. No dream or ambition has gone uncommodified, thus all desire gets bizarrely validated. This is the damnable truth of late capitalism realized by Toy Story 2, the year's most sheerly delightful Hollywood film. I can come out and say that having registered my resistance to the first Toy Story as one long product placement commercial, that here imaginative excitement has rarely been conveyed on screen so powerfully. He talks about the toys getting a sense of their own cultural history from watching the old early TV black and white shows. He talks about how that plays back into how toy making and media converged in a generation's subconsciousness. The collective bourgeois memory of the affection with which we endowed otherwise inanimate objects and marked our own growing experience, that this is not disposable technology like the interminable... Pokemon, and Princess Mononoke. Toy Story 2 shows how pop art can disarm your loftiest objections with unexpected wit and genuine insight. Magical describes it, but not the aspects that are superlatively humane. It is really hard to read Armin White out loud. But anyway, Armin White, he liked Toy Story 2. I don't know what he's going to say about Toy Story 4. Maybe he'll surprise us again.
3: Well, it's interesting. You said that Toy Story 1 is 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Toy Story 2, 100%. Toy Story 3, 98%. And currently, as of this recording, which is Uh, the week that Toy Story 4 comes out, it is at 97%. These are movies that, and again, I think you speak to how long it's taken between each one coming out. Toy Story 3 came out in 2010. This is coming out in 2019. There's space between these movies, you know, and that's pretty amazing for a franchise to retain this level of quality. Like, I remember leaving Toy Story 3 and just being kind of blown away by it. It, it. You know, They kind of continue to figure out how to push these characters in really interesting ways. And I think there's something to be said for a franchise that can grow you know years and years and years without the characters aging. And it feels like, as a, somebody who's in a house right now watching them back to back in pieces here and there, they all feel of one thing. And that's so hard to do, whether it's Star Wars, whether it's even Marvel in the 10 years and how everyone's kind of changing that. It's like, this is a moment. It, it will never change. You could make this movie in 35 years from now if you wanted, you know, if you had the right voice actors to replace certain people.
2: You love giant corporate products. I am learning this uh,
3: <laughs> I grew up on a lot of them. But you know what? Uh, it doesn't mean I don't like it. It doesn't mean that I, I don't like a lot of cool indie shit, too. I mean, I made a career in in not having uh, money to make shit. But I like it. I think when it's done well, I really like it. When it's done shitty, I don't like it. Like I can tell you, like I've seen so many animated movies, and maybe that's why I'm talking about it in a way that's so impassioned. I've
5: that's I've true. sat and
3: th- I've sat through the shittiest computer animated garbage and trash. You know, whether it's Super Wings or fucking Thomas uh, or you know, it, like these things that are they don't look good. They're not fun they're not you know and look
5: you're trolls is
3: fine it's like they they got songs but it's not making me feel that other movie ugly dolls fine i mean there's worse there's worse i guess but i've seen i've been there i've been at the front lines i have ptcad post-traumatic animation disorder i've seen so much stuff and and I guess I what I what I am saying is it's so rare to be this good. It's so rare. It's even in the Pixar world, there are there are some holes. This is rare. It's really interesting. So, that's like so yes. Uh do I love every Marvel movie? I enjoy them all, but I don't love them all. I wouldn't be speaking like this about, you know, dark world.
2: I mean, I was I was about to say you sounded like a veteran, and then you just said that you were a veteran halfway uh, through that really impassioned, <laughs> slightly terrifying speech that makes me not want to have kids.
3: The kids are great. It's just like their taste as shit. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's okay. It's getting better every single day. <laughs> you
2: know, I was really nervous sitting down for the My Little Pony movie, given that that was my toy, that yeah. that was the toy that I really cared mm-hmm. about deeply and personally. It was okay.
3: People like it. It was People okay. People like it.
2: They've done some interesting things with that brand. Although I don't really like how they've made the, the pony so much skinnier.
3: Um, well, yeah, you know, it's a different time. Um, it's 99 on the list. Higher, lower, what do you think? On the list? Do you even think it should be on the list?
2: You know what? I think it should be on the list. and. I wouldn't even mind if it was a little higher, to be honest. I think 99 sounds a little low for something that feels very large in our consciousness.
3: It feels like it's slipped in. This is above Ben-Hur. We're talking about these two movies. Like, I would not put Ben-Hur in this in the same sentence. I mean, maybe I'm being over, overly harsh to Ben-Hur, but this is a this is a game-changer movie. I, I think this belongs in in the top 50. You know, Ben-Hur sold a lot of toys. They did, and also, like, baking powder. Uh... I guess the question now, only one remains, and this I'm sure is a, an, an amazingly meta one, is there a Simpsons about another animated show?
2: Why, yes, there is, sort of. There's a Pixar reference. This is from the episode The Simpsons' Angry Dad, the movie, where Bart has this Angry Dad web series, and it becomes an Academy Oscar-winning contender. They go to the Oscars, and here they run into the entire Pixar team.
0: The creative team from Pixar. Pardon me. I have seen all of your movies except Cars, and I can't believe my brother is in the same category as the digital Rembrandts of my generation.
1: So, that makes your brother the competition. Randy, tell her how we feel about that.
3: You've got an enemy. You've got an enemy nightlife because we have eight nights. Yes, you've got an enemy. M&M. <laughs> all right. First of all, that is one of the funniest Simpsons clips we've ever watched on this show. Just to give you a couple of uh, things, all the people from Mixar uh, come in on uh, like those, uh, like those little scooters, like those like bird scooters, like the push pedal scooters, uh, and they're all wearing Hawaiian shirts and sandals. Uh, also, what you've missed in there is that the intimidating uh, light fixture from. Uh, Pixar, that little lamp kind of aggressively goes and pushes uh, Lisa, and then Wally takes a gun out of its main compartment and threatens her, and then she's also intimidated by a um, a kind of a bat wielding uh, Mister Potato Head. That is hilarious.
2: <laughs> you know what's so embarrassing is I think I've seen Wally. I don't know, five times, Mm -hmm. six times, Mm -hmm. and I forgot that that was Wally. I thought that was Johnny Five from Short Circuit, and I was like so confused why Johnny Five from Short Circuit was that's hilarious.
3: (laughs) And you've seen it five times, and it's the thing about Pixar. All right, Amy, um, this is lovely talking to you about Toy Story. Um, I can't wait to hear what you think about Toy Story 4. Thank you to our guest, Josh Cooley, the director of Toy Story 4, and Annie Potts, who we are such a huge fan of. Um, and, uh, you know, this is not a plug, but I'm, I will be there opening weekend. We've been talking about it in our house, how excited we are to see Toy Story 4. So next week, when we come back to uh, chat again, I will give you my full-throated uh, review of Toy Story 4. Uh, but next week, we are talking about another... Seminal classic, another new addition to the 2007 list. Um, it is from Spike Lee. It's called Do the Right Thing. Um, it is also uh, being re-released in theaters. Um, but it's a great time to kind of revisit this film and how amazingly uh, powerful it is. But instead of focusing on that film for our call, and I thought maybe we'd do something a little bit different, which is would this be the Pixar that you would pick for the list. There's so many Pixar films out there. Um, and that's a debate that I would like to get into. I could get into that as well. Like, what would be your Pixar? If you could only allow one, and I imagine that you would only want one Pixar on this list, even though they're different directors, different voices, everything. Uh, do you have a quick thought on that, Amy? What yours would be?
2: Ooh. I mean, I'm half tempted to say Ratatouille, but that movie wow. goes very hard on critics.
3: hmm Okay, so Ratatouille is yours. Um... I really think Incredibles would probably be the one that I I would I don't know although I, I feel really good about Toy Story. Hmm, it's a it's a debate that I'm gonna have to think about, and I hope you guys think about it as well. Can I put
2: an imaginary Pixar film on the list?
3: Yeah, sure. Go okay. ahead.
2: My imaginary Pixar film is The Brave that would have existed before they took Brave away from the original director. I really want to see whatever that movie was, and that movie would probably be my favorite. <laughs> I'm serious Okay I'm 100% serious Before it was like uh, Now everybody's a bear Whatever that movie Was going to be Is like To me The the lost film That I've, I'm dying to know
3: Okay So you want to see A film that Pixar Has not made on the list I am uh, Debating <laughs> a handful Of Pixar films That are all uh, Equally interesting And uh, and fun I don't know If you could put A sequel on the list But maybe I would Put a Toy Story sequel on. I don't know It's Incredibles Toy Story almost. I'll let you pick
2: Between Godfather 2 And Toy Story 2 Oh you can, you can sleep on that. Too. All right, Do I will. All right, great. Okay.
3: Um, you can give us a call at uh, the unspooled voicemail line at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Let us know what Pixar film you believe belongs on the list. And you know what? We'll rein you in here. It has to have been made. So uh, <laughs> we will see you next week for Do the Right Thing. I uh, cannot wait to talk about that and then talk a little bit more Pixar with you. <sighs>